Good morning. Happy Father's Day. This morning we're going to be taking a look at Judges chapter 6. And as we get started, I just have to say that sometimes the hardest thing about being an expositor of God's Word is expositing God's Word. And it's hard for a number of reasons. Uh, Sometimes it's because the passage is really confusing and we have to look up a lot of background information to give us the, the context that we need to understand it. And sometimes it's hard because it addresses an uncomfortable topic. Sometimes it's hard because as a minister, I know what's going on in the lives of people that are sitting out there, and I know that as I address a passage, it's going to be hard for people, certain people to comprehend and certain people to deal with based on what's going on in their lives. But none of that's the case this morning. This morning, it's hard to be an expositor because this passage is very self-explanatory. And it's been a struggle this week to figure out what do I need to say about this, but you pay me to talk, so I'm going to do it anyway. So open your Bibles with me, if you will, to the book of Judges, chapter 6. And let's pray, and then we'll get started. Father, we thank you for the opportunity of gathering together to open your word together this morning, and and we know that, Lord, that's not the case for everybody, for all of our brothers and sisters in Christ around the world this morning. And so, Father, we pray for those who who don't have this privilege, that they would be strengthened in their faith, that you would supernaturally uh, continue to minister in those areas. Lord, we pray that uh, governments would soften, that missionaries would be able to, to infiltrate, and Lord, that your word would just continue to go forth, which we know it will. Father, we thank you uh, that we can gather here this morning. I pray that every word that comes from my mouth would be your word and that, Lord, your Holy Spirit would inhabit everyone. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, Judges chapter 6. We're going to begin reading with verse number 1. Then the sons of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord gave them into the hands of Midian for seven years. The power of Midian prevailed against Israel. Because of Midian, the sons of Israel made for themselves the dens which were in the mountains and the caves and the strongholds. For it was when when Israel had sown that the Midianites would come up with the Amalekites and the sons of the east and go against them. So they would camp against them and destroy the produce of the earth as far as Gaza and leave no sustenance in Israel as well as no sheep, ox, or donkey." For they would come up with their livestock and their tents. They would come in like locusts for number. Both they and their camels were innumerable, and they came into the land to devastate it. So Israel was brought very low because of Midian, and the sons of Israel cried to the Lord. We'll stop there for now. So our chapter begins by showing us that once again, Israel has entered into the cycle They've once again committed the sin of idol worship, and as punishment, God has allowed an oppressor to come in against them, and this time it was Midian, and this time things were different because the the Midianites were not an occupying force. Uh, In other words, they didn't live with the Israelites year-round, and that's because the Midianites were nomads. They were a nomadic people, and they supported themselves by traveling around, stealing and trading the things that they stole. In fact, all the way back in Genesis chapter 37, we learned that the Midianite traders were involved in transporting Joseph to Egypt and where they sold him as a slave. So not much has changed for Midian in the preceding centuries. Still hundreds of years later, they are a nomadic people doing 
stealing and trading, at least some of that trading involves slave trading, something that God says is detestable and worthy of death. And I tell you that just so that you get the full picture that the Midianites were a despicable and merciless people, leaving a trail of destruction in their wake. And yet, they were precisely the people that God was allowing to oppress his people, Israel. For a period of seven years, each year, after the Israelites had spent all summer in the sun, growing crops, tending their livestock, the Midianites would descend upon them and devour all the grain, steal their livestock. Verse 4 says they would devour the produce of the land and leave no sustenance in Israel and no sheep or ox or donkey. Verse 5 says the land was laid to waste. And verse 6 says Israel was brought very low. For seven years in a row, they watched the, the, all that they had worked hard for just get stripped away from them. The scripture doesn't specify this, but surely due to the scarcity of food, there had to be uh, Jews who starved to death during this period of time. After seven years of having your grain stolen and your livestock stolen, there had to be people who starved to death. But before we move on, I want you to look at verse 2 again, because there's something really revealing in that verse. What did Israel, God's chosen people, choose to do every year when Midian descended upon them in the fall? Did they rise up and fight? Did they pray? Did they cry out to God? No, they fled. Right? They fled to the mountains and caves for seven years in a row. This is quite the humiliation for a people group who were living in a land that God had given to them, that God had provided to them. Even in the midst of starvation, it took them seven years to be humble enough to cry out to the Lord and pray and ask for deliverance. So let's go back to our text and read verses 7 through 10. Now it came about when the sons of Israel cried to the Lord on account of Midian, that the Lord sent a prophet to the sons of Israel. And he said to them, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, it was I who brought you up from Egypt and brought you out of the house of slavery. I delivered you from the hands of the Egyptians and from the hands of all your oppressors and dispossessed them before you and gave you their land. And I said to you, I am the Lord your God. You shall not fear the gods of the Amorites in whose land you live, but you have not obeyed me. So Israel finally, after seven years, finally cries out to God. Uh, but before, in, in, in times past, God, they cry out to God, God sends a judge who would deliver them. This time he does things differently. He sends a prophet. And the prophet, we don't even know the prophet's name, but the prophet was sent for one purpose, to point out their sin to them. Pastor Mike spoke a few weeks ago about the humor in the book of Judges. And I think we kind of see that here because Israel cries out in agony, and instead of sending a deliverer, God sends a prophet. And this is a little bit like... Your car breaks down on the side of the road, so you call for a tow truck, but instead the mechanic sends your dad to give you a lecture on the importance of doing maintenance on your car, right? Not that that's ever happened to me. <laughs> so why do you suppose God did things a bit differently this time? Why did he first send a prophet? And I think there's a twofold reason. First is that 
it shows us Israel still didn't understand that they were the problem. They thought that their whole issue was Midian. These evil Midianites are oppressing us. They didn't make the connection that it was their own sin of idol worship that was bringing, them, bringing Midian against them. It never even crossed their minds. Their cry for God to help did not mean that they were repentant or they recognized their sin. They just despised the circumstances that they found themselves in. And even now, the prophet's words were going to fall on deaf ears, and we'll see a lot of evidence of that as we continue to proceed through this passage. And the second reason this message is important is because in spite of Israel's repeated pattern of sin, we again, and in spite of their, their lack of repentance, we once again see God, the God of love and grace and mercy, respond to them. In spite of their lack of repentance, their misery is enough for him to respond. He loves them. So let's continue reading again, beginning with verse 11. And this time we're going to read all the way through verse 24. Then the angel of the Lord came and sat under the oak that was in Ophrah, which belonged to Joash, and his son, as his son Gideon was beating out wheat in the winepress in order to save it from the Midianites. The angel of the Lord appeared to him and said, The Lord is with you, O valiant warrior. Then Gideon said to him, O my Lord, if the Lord is with us, why then has all this happened to us? And where are the miracles which our fathers told us about, saying, Did not the Lord bring us up from Egypt? But now the Lord has abandoned us and given us into the hand of Midian. The Lord looked at him and said, Go in this your strength and deliver Israel from the hand of Midian. Have I not sent you? And he said to him, O Lord, how shall I deliver Israel? Behold, my family is the least in Manasseh, and I am the youngest in my father's house. But the Lord said to him, Surely I will be with you, and you shall defeat Midian as one man. So Gideon said to him, if now I have found favor in your sight, then show me a sign that it's you who speak with me. Please do not depart from here until I come back to you and bring out my offering and lay it before you. And he said, I will remain until you return. Then Gideon went in and prepared a young goat and unleavened bread from an ephah of flour. He put the meat in a basket and the broth in a pot and brought them out under the oak and presented them. The angel of the God said to him, Take the meat and unleavened bread and lay them on this rock and pour out the broth. And he did so. Then the angel of the Lord put out the end of the staff that was in his hand and touched the meat and the unleavened bread. And fire sprang up from the rock and consumed the meat and the unleavened bread. Then the angel of the Lord vanished from his sight. And when Gideon saw that he was the angel of the Lord, he said, Alas, O Lord God. For now I have seen the angel of the Lord face to face. The Lord said to him, Peace to you, do not fear, you shall not die. Then Gideon built an altar there to the Lord and named it, The Lord is Peace. To this day it is still there. <laughs> so, let's stop here and make a few more observations. First we find Gideon in this passage preparing wheat for storage in the wine press. 
Normally this process would have happened up on the top of a hill where there's a breeze to carry the chaff away, but Gideon was doing it in a wine press. And here's a picture of what a wine press would have looked like at that time in history. It was built down into the rock or carved out of the rock underground. It was a place for the grapes to be pressed and the juice to stay there and ferment. There was no breeze in there, so it would have made Gideon's job of separating the wheat much more difficult. But the cool thing is Gideon's working. He hasn't given up. He's not just sulking. He's still working, still trying to be creative, to come up with ways to, to feed his family and to preserve grain for his family. He's not happy with the way things are going in Israel, but he's also not resigned to it. If we stop to think about it, we realize that many times in Scripture, when God appears and calls people to do extraordinary things, he does that as they're in the process of doing ordinary things. He called to Moses and David while they were tending sheep. He called to Elisha while he was plowing a field. He called to many of the apostles while they were mending their nets or even fishing. All of them just doing ordinary things. You know, I think there's this tendency in humanity to want our heroes to all be of the super variety. We want their stories to be extraordinary from start to finish. And in Scripture, there definitely are some of those. I mean, we have Samson, right? He was extraordinary before he was ever born. It was prophesied he was going to be this extraordinary man. We have stories like that. But more often than not, I think we find that God uses the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. And he uses the weak things to shame the things which are strong. And although these words aren't specifically from Scripture, I think they apply he uses the things that are ordinary to shame the things that are extraordinary so that no man can boast before God. And what I think we're going to see as this narrative unfolds is that Gideon was an ordinary man who was called to do extraordinary things. Earlier, we talked about the fact, here we're going to see just how ordinary Gideon was. Earlier, we talked about the fact that the nation of Israel didn't see their sin as being the issue of why they were being oppressed. They just saw Midian. What does Gideon think is their problem? Look at verse 13. What does Gideon think is their issue? He thinks God has abandoned Israel, right? He's heard the stories of what God has done in the past, but he's not seeing that happen with his own two eyes. He believes those stories are true, but again, he's not seeing them happen now. And even after the appearance of the prophet, Israel, including Gideon, still haven't recognized that their suffering is the result of sin. The prophet's message has fallen on deaf ears, Gideon included. So to this point, nothing about Gideon appears to be extraordinary, does it? He seems very ordinary. He's a working class guy. He doesn't see the world much differently than any of the other Israelites. He doesn't have a history of doing amazing things. He doesn't even have special insight into what God is doing with the nation of Israel. He's just an ordinary average guy. Yet despite all of that, God's messenger appears and he addresses Gideon as, O valiant warrior. And he says, go in your strength and deliver Israel from the hand of Midian. 
Have I not sent you? What are we missing? What are we missing? What is it that God sees in Gideon that the rest of us aren't catching on to? I think it's kind of all here in plain sight, really. It's all there. First, again, we see Gideon is humble. He's hardworking. He's creatively coming up with ideas on how to, how to hide grain from the Midianites. Most people at that time were paralyzed in fear. Gideon's not. Next, we see that he was distressed by the state of Israel, lamenting to the angel about all that has happened to us. He wasn't resigned to suffering, but he was certainly distressed by it. Also, Gideon knew about the things that God had done in the past, and he believed that God could do those things again. But finally, and most importantly, I think what God knows that the rest of us don't is he says, I will be with you. He knows that he's going to be with Gideon. And here's where I think things get interesting. Uh, I think we can clearly see that Gideon has no doubt in God's abilities. And throughout this whole passage, he never doubts God's abilities. But here we ha- he does have a doubt. It's, are you really from God? How do I know you're from God? That, that's, that's a legitimate question, don't you think? Any of us ever seen a messenger from God? How would we know? How would we know he was real? So he asks for a sign. And the angel gives him a sign. Fire springs up, consumes the sacrifice. The messenger disappears. In response, Gideon builds an altar and worships. And now we're going to go back to our text and see what happens next. Beginning with verse 25. Now on the same night, the Lord said to him, Take your father's bull and a second bull, seven years old, and pull down the altar of Baal, which belongs to your father, and cut down the Asherah that's beside it, and build an altar to the Lord your God on top of this stronghold in an orderly manner, and take a second bull and offer a burnt offering with the wood of the Asherah, which you shall cut down. Then Gideon took ten men of his servants and did as the Lord had spoken to him, And because he was too afraid of his father's household and the men of the city to do it by day, he did it by night. When the men of the city arose early in the morning, behold, the altar of Baal was torn down and the asher which was beside it was cut down and the second bull was offered on the altar which had been built. They said to one another, who did this thing? And when they searched about and inquired, they said, Gideon, the son of Joash, did this thing. Then the men of the city said to Joash, Bring out your son, that he may die, for he has torn down the altar of Baal, and indeed he has cut down the Asherah which was beside it. But Joash said to all who stood against him, Will you contend for Baal? Will you deliver him? Whoever will plead for him shall be put to death by morning. If he is a god, let him contend for himself, because someone has torn down his altar." Therefore, on that day, he named him Jerubbabel, that is to say, let Baal contend against him because he had torn down his altar. Now, remember back at the beginning when the people first cried out to God because of the oppression from Midian and God sent the prophet and the prophet told them their problem was sin. Everyone remember that? It fell on deaf ears. It fell on deaf ears. And here we have some more evidence of that. Because the events we just read occurred after that prophet had been there. If Gideon's father 
had heard that message and wanted to tear down his altar to Baal and the Asherah pole, he could have done that at any time, but he never did. He never did. Because the Israelites still did not comprehend that Midian was not their primary problem. Their primary problem was their own sin of idol worship. So it seems appropriate that before Gideon gets sent into battle against the Midianites, God says, Gideon, clean up your own house. Clean up your own place. He tells Gideon to tear down his father's altar to Baal and the Asherah pool. And in his place, he's to build an altar to the one true God. And then he's to sacrifice one of his father's bulls on that altar using the wood from the Asherah pole as the source of fire. Now, after Israel has been plundered for seven years, I don't think Gideon's father's going to be real happy about losing one of the few cattle he has left, right? Let alone his altar to his foreign god. But that's what the messenger of God tells Gideon to do. And he does it, but when did he do it? Come on. At night. And why did he do that? Because he was afraid, right? Was he obedient? Was he courageous? No. Look at verse 14. The Lord looked at him. The Lord looked at him and said, Go in this your strength and deliver Israel from the, mount, from the hand of Midian. Have I not sent you? Now verse 23. The Lord said to him, Peace to you, do not fear, you shall not die. Did Gideon need to be afraid of his neighbors and his father? No. Nope. But he was. And it's really easy for us to, to be critical of Gideon because he did not exude confident courage. But I want us to notice that in spite of his fear, he was obedient. And as God had promised, he didn't die. And as a result of those two things, something important begins to happen. The next morning, it took the neighbors almost no time to figure out who had done this thing, right? And they did want to kill him. They wanted to kill him. But almost unexpectedly, Gideon's father rises to the occasion. He rises to the occasion. He rose up to defend his son. That's not what Gideon was expecting. He was expecting his father probably to let the townspeople have their way with him. But he didn't do that. God, who is faithful, inspired Gideon's father to rise up and defend him. So do you see what's happening here? Yes, God has called Gideon to do something extraordinary, to lead Israel in battle against Midian and win. But he's preparing him. He's giving him small victories. He's building his confidence. He's building his faith, demonstrating that God is trustworthy. Do you see it? Let's read the final section of our passage for today. Then all the Midianites and the Amalekites and the sons of the east assembled themselves, and they crossed over and camped in the valley of Jezreel. So the Spirit of the Lord came upon Gideon, and he blew a trumpet, and the Abirzites were called together to follow him. He sent messengers throughout Manasseh, and they also were called together to follow him. He sent messengers to Asher, Zebulun, and Naphtali, and they came up to meet him. Then Gideon said to God, if you will deliver Israel through me as you have spoken, 
Behold, I will put a fleece of wool on the threshing floor. If there is dew on the fleece only, and it's dry on all the ground, then I will know you will deliver Israel through me as you have spoken. And it was so. When he arose early the next morning and squeezed the fleece, he drained the dew from the fleece, a bowl full of water. Then Gideon said to God, Do not let your anger burn against me that I may speak once more. Please let me make a test once more with the fleece. Let it now be dry on the fleece only, and let there be dew on all the ground. And God did so that night, for it was dry only on the fleece, and the dew was on all the ground. See how patient God has consistently been with Gideon in this passage. He's already shown himself faithful by saving Gideon from the anger of his family and neighbors. Then Gideon blew the trumpet and sent messengers, and 32,000 men, chapter 7 tells us, 32,000 men responded to that call. Now, this is significant because for seven years, these are the same guys that for seven years have been cowering in caves every time Midian comes to town. But this time, 32,000 men show up to fight. Why? What's changed? God's Spirit moved, right? God's Spirit moved. They cried out to Israel, and God responded. And still Gideon finds himself doubting. He's had lots of doubts, right? He had doubts in the beginning whether that was really the angel of God. Here he has another doubt, but in neither place is he doubting God. He's not doubting God's ability. First he doubted whether that was really God's messenger. Now he's doubting his own ability. So he's making sure that God is absolutely sure. God, you're sure that I'm the one you want for this job, right? Gideon desperately wanted the Midianites to be defeated. They'd oppressed his people for seven long years, but the one thing he didn't want was to go into battle not being sure that he was God's appointed one to lead. So just to be sure, he asked for the fleece to be wet and the ground to be dry. God grants that. Then he asked for the fleece to be dry and the ground to be wet, and God grants that. And you'll have to come back next week to find out the rest of the story or read ahead, whichever. But as we wrap up today, we need to ask, as we always do, what does this passage mean for us? What does it say to us? And I think we can clearly see two things. Has anyone read the book, When People Are Big and God Is Small? Anyone read that book? Not anybody's read that book? Well, it's a, that book has an important message that I think applies to us today. For a moment, I want us to think about Israel's history, beginning at the time when they were slaves in Egypt and God delivered them out from under Pharaoh's thumb. Not only did Pharaoh release them from slavery, but when they left, the people of Egypt gave them gifts of gold and silver just to leave. Here's some, here's some gold and silver, now get out of here, you know. They left after 400 years in slavery. They didn't leave in poverty. They left in wealth. After they left, God split the Red Sea so they could cross on dry land. They cross. They watched the walls of water crash in on Pharaoh and his army who were in pursuit. Not long later, Moses sends the spies into the promised land. And what do they come back and say? We look like grasshoppers in our own eyes. Those people are huge. We can't defeat those people. Think of all they had just seen. People were big. And God was small. So they wander in the desert for 40 years until all that generation had died. 
God feeds them with manna from heaven. Their sandals don't wear out. Finally, it's time to go in the promised land. God stops the flow of the Jordan. They go in. The walls of Jericho fall down. They win battle after battle after battle. How do we find Israel cowering in caves after God had shown himself over and over and over and over again to be so faithful and so loving? Because in the eyes of Israel, the Midianites were big and God was small. How did they end up there? It started with one compromise. After not driving out the inhabitants of the land, Israel became cozy with the people. They adopted their, they gave their sons and daughters to the sons and daughters of their pagan neighbors. Then they adopted, they didn't want to be offensive to their pagan neighbors, so they adopted their gods. Compromise. You know, at the time, I'm sure it seemed like a good idea. Because the pagans also adopted Yahweh. They had no problem adding Yahweh to their plethora of gods. So in the eyes of Israel, I'm sure it seemed like a good idea. Look, God, we're making converts. But were they? No. Because Yahweh is the one true God. And he cannot share a stage with idols, with false gods. So when Israel fell into the trap of fearing man and worshiping false gods, God allowed Israel to reap the desires of their heart. You want to worship false gods? Let them save you. And their lives fell apart because idols have no power to save. You see how the fear of man was the root that went all the way back to the beginning. And that's how we end up here. And it's really easy for us to, to point that out all these years later, but we're still doing the same thing. It still happens. In fact, Jesus warned all of us in Matthew chapter 10, don't fear those who kill the body but are unable to kill the soul. Fear the one who's able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Yet how many times do we stay silent when we see injustice instead of speaking up? Because we fear the repercussions of man. Edmund Burke famously said, the only thing necessary for the triumph of evil is for good men to do nothing. And he was right, wasn't he? But we still stay silent. We stay silent because people are big and God is small. How many extra hours do we have to put in at work trying to impress the boss while the family who God has given us is at home not being discipled by us? Not to say that we don't work overtime. You know, I'm not saying that we should never work overtime. I'm saying there's a point where it becomes excessive, where the boss becomes big and God becomes small. How many Christian teens have lost their virginity or become addicted to pornography because they were convinced by their peers that they were missing out on something? People are big. God is small. How many churches are compromising on doctrine, what is clearly called sin by the Word of God, to avoid controversy in their communities? Because political activists are big. God is small. 
My friends, these are just a few examples that happen. Things that happen when we believe that people are big and God is small. Lives are destroyed. Families are destroyed. Churches are destroyed. And yet, the Apostle Paul, writing under inspiration of the Holy Spirit, says these wonderful words to us in Romans chapter 8. He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? We have no need to fear man because our God is not small. We serve a big God. Do you believe that? I hope so. Because it brings me to the second and final thing that I think we see in this passage, which is that faith the size of a mustard seed can move mountains. Jesus said in Matthew 17, 20, if you have faith the size of a mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible to you. I think we see that clearly, that that principle clearly in this passage today. Would any of us say that Gideon began chapter 6 with anything more than a mustard seed worth of faith? He didn't start that way, did he? He began by asking for a sign, then he obeyed under cover of darkness. Then he asked for two more signs going into battle. This is not a guy who began with a huge amount of faith. But he didn't need a huge amount, and neither did we. Neither do we. Just like Gideon, it's not hard for us to believe that that Jesus can do great things. Gideon had a hard time believing that he could do great things, even if God empowered him. He's like, are you sure, God? Are you sure I'm the right one? He didn't doubt God's ability. He doubted his own ability. We do the same thing. We don't doubt that Jesus can do great things. We doubt that Jesus can use us to do great things. But Gideon's faith grew. That's why faith the size of a mustard seed is all we need, is because faith the size of a mustard seed can grow. When God gave Gideon the sign of consuming his sacrifice, that seed grew. Then he gave him the task of cleaning up his own house, and that seed grew. Then he gave him two more signs, and the seed grew. Then he blew the trumpet, and 32,000 men showed up, and his seed grew. Faith, the size of a mustard seed, grows into a mustard tree, right? He does the same thing for us. So what's God calling you to? What's God calling you to? What's the first small step he's asking you to go to? Maybe it's to give your heart to him for the first time. Maybe it's to be baptized next Sunday. Maybe it's dealing with a sin issue that's been plaguing you for a while. Maybe it's to share your faith with somebody that you stand next to at work. I don't know. It could be a thousand different things. But what's God calling you to? What's that first little step of faith that God's calling you to? What's that mustard seed? Because he wants to grow it. He's going to be patient with you, and he's going to allow your faith to grow. We serve a big God. And if we have faith in him the size of a mustard seed, we can move mountains. That's a mustard seed. That's a mustard tree. Let's pray.